I'm Afshin Ratansi and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from Dubai and the UAE in the last week after mass arrests of pro-democracy activists in London protesting the coronation of Charles III. Russia celebrated the 78th anniversary of the winning, its winning World War II and the crushing of fascism. This, as Moscow claims, it is again today fighting Nazis in Europe armed to the teeth by Washington, London and Brussels. NATO nation media was keen to highlight the apparent scaled-back celebration this year as a result of what it claims were depleted military resources and forces due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. On Saturday's show, we spoke to Dan Rice, the former special advisor to Ukraine's Armed Forces Commander-in-Chief, General Zaluzhny, to hear how the war is going from the Ukrainian side. Now joining me from Canterbury in the UK for a different viewpoint, arguably, is Professor Richard Sakwa, Kent University's Emeritus Professor of Russian and European Politics and the author of The Russia Scare, Fake News and Genuine Threat. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Professor, for coming back uh, on the show. I don't know, so much has happened since you last spoke to us uh, in uh, December before the February uh, move by Russia. I suppose I should just ask you how, uh, how it is over there in uh, Britain, where I arguably can't actually do journalism. How, how is it in Britain, uh, the coverage well, of, of say, Victory Day, uh, commemorating the victory over the Nazis in World War II? Well, I mean, uh, that it wasn't much mentioned, but the uh, well, of course, we've had a lot of excitement with uh, three prime ministers in the course of a year, several finance ministers, this, that, and the other. So it's been a very uh, exciting time in UK politics, and obviously the Brexit question is still unresolved about how that's going to be sorted out in the future. But uh, as you say, for Victory Day, it doesn't really feature that much, and it's been overshadowed by the coronation, as you said, on the 6th of May. Do you think it's broadly successful? Because, I mean, your book, uh, Frontline Ukraine, I tell everyone to read it. It's a required reading for the context of what we are witnessing on our uh, media about Ukraine in NATO countries, very different to those in the Global South, the coverage of what's happening in Ukraine. Broadly successful to, uh, I know your other book on disinformation about Russia, uh, how Western Europe, the United States, has been uh, demonizing Russia because they've had years of practice in preparing for what's been happening in Ukraine? Yes. What uh, I mean, I've been warning about the slide towards confrontation, uh, though, of course, few of us could have anticipated a full scale war of this sort. But uh, the uh, slide has been continuing for almost 20 years, you could say even 30 from the very first days of German unification, 1990, NATO enlargement, then throughout the 1990s. Because people forget it was Boris Yeltsin who in December 1994 first talked about a cold peace, which was a signal that the post-Cold War European security order was not satisfactory. There was dissatisfaction, obviously, from the Russian side. And also, the uh, well, there, there was... Uh, one of the conditions of uh, not just NATO enlargement, but European Union enlargement, I've always argued there should have been a fourth Copenhagen criteria, and that is working positively towards peace and uh, you know reconciliation from the old Cold War positions. Unfortunately, Cold War became embedded both institutionally and ideologically, which has led us to where we are today. But... Uh... 
others would say that uh, Julian Assange notably always used to say there's a recycling of money into weapons manufacturers. Peace doesn't make uh, make money. But I did notice just in the past few days the uh, jailing of some uh, French uh, extremists, neo-Nazis, returning from Ukraine. Any dangers like uh, uh, what happened uh, in Afghanistan when Britain and the United States supported forces that would eventually turn back on uh, the United States in 9-11, yeah. that neo-Nazis are going to come back from Ukraine and haunt Western Europe? Well, I think it's it, that is part of it, but it's a much, much bigger blowback uh, in prospect because uh, this conflict is, uh, it, one could argue, only in its early stages. I mean, however dreadful that may sound, and it's awful, of course. Uh, but uh, the blowback back onto Western societies, you know, the return of people who've been, well, all societies are going to suffer from this, people who've become inured to war, to killing, to violence. And of course, this is going to, uh, you know, threaten the societies themselves. It's a huge danger. Plus, of course, the very fact of a conflict like this you know, it reinforces, uh, you know, the you know polarization, political polarization, as we see, is intense in the United States. It's quite strong in France. In the UK, there's certainly so many unresolved contradictions that, uh, you know, th that the the context of an external conflict, internal polarization, it's uh, heading towards very choppy waters indeed. Although I notice that uh, you have spoken about. Uh, very uh, nascent movements uh, which are uh, not uh, which are bipartisan in the United States to a lesser extent in Europe bizarrely uh, which just doesn't they don't want uh, war and it doesn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat you just don't support the existing status quo of uh, I suppose NATO expansion it's a fascinating development, especially in the United States, where you have the old-fashioned conservative right, the people like Patrick Buchanan and uh, the larger paleo-conservative movement, very, very critical of the war. Then you have old-fashioned statists. I'm thinking, for example, the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, which is urging restraint. And then, of course, you have the uh, the old-fashioned, which I'm very sympathetic to, the old left-wing, the peace movements, uh, the Massachusetts peace movement. There's all sorts of organizations and individuals. And it's actually, you know, that's one of the only encouraging signs now is that these there's a general uh, debate in the United States about this. Unfortunately, in the UK, this is very, very limited. Yes, there are movements. The uh, um, Stop the War Coalition um, still exists. The campaign for nuclear disarmament is still active. I and heard they can't even enough, hire halls for demonstrations against uh, NATO policy in London now. It's yes, that did happen. Worse than during the First World War. Yes, it's that hysteria. Uh, indeed, in fact, uh, the Stop the War was hoping to meet in St Pancras uh, Church and you know and uh, Conway Hall, uh, and indeed, it's it's absolutely scandalous because the whole point of a civilized society is that you can have discussion and open debate, and unfortunately, uh, it's become very hard to do that. It's, uh, unfortunately, in the UK, above all, I think that in France and in Italy, there's uh, very interesting and lively discussions, and in Germany, um, popular protests. But in the UK, in England, I mean, I, perhaps in Scotland, Wales, it's different. But in England, it's really limited. Does it surprise you that uh, since we last spoke to each other, 
people like Angela Merkel, of all people, came out to mm. explain that the Minsk agreement, which I think we discussed in that December edition of Going Underground, December mm. 2021, that that was a, uh, basically a ploy to arm yeah. Ukraine uh, further in preparation right. as it was uh, bombing, of course, the civilians of Donetsk and Luhansk, which provoked, as the Russians see it, uh, the response from Moscow. Yeah. Um, she did say that, and in fact, twice. And so did Francois Hollande, the other um, member of the Normandy format. Uh, I wonder, so as concerning Merkel, I just wonder whether she's saying that now because she's getting so much flack because she supported all the way through the building of Nord Stream 2, in fact, Nord Stream 1 earlier. And she was absolutely committed to the continuation of the energy partnership between Germany uh, and Russia. And so when all of that fell apart uh, in February last year, that she, uh, in a sense, found herself politically exposed. And as we know, she's a master in in maneuver, political maneuver. So I wonder whether earlier, but the, the worst thing, of course, about Minsk is that Russia was constantly exhorted to fulfill its unnamed obligations, whereas the very specific Ukrainian obligations, no one was particularly putting any pressure on them. So clearly, I think that both Angela Merkel and Hollande uh, have a lot to answer for. I will say, though, interestingly, Macron, uh, in the lead up to the uh, events last of last February 2022, was very active diplomatically, and I I do support that. I mean, I, I laud and you know applaud attempts to um, find a diplomatic solution. It didn't lead to anything, and it just shows the way that European leaders lack traction. That they you know they they you know they're perhaps and Olaf Scholz before the events also was active diplomatically, um, but you know the decisions were taken in Washington and so uh, which once again very sadly in my view as an old-fashioned gaullist who wanted to see over the years I've been calling for pan-continental vision some sort of vision of unity from uh, Lisbon to Vladivostok and instead of which we ended up this hyper-Atlanticism which basically marginalized the old what I know nowadays call the legacy powers that's France that's Germany that's the UK their wheels may turn but they're not actually engaging with anything substantive I know, I know France, didn't, France didn't join in the war on Iraq, but uh, Charles de Gaulle did plenty yeah. of rehabilitation of neo-Nazis in Vichy, we must uh, remember. And actually, isn't the question that actually, was that always a lie? Uh, that uh, even from Willy Brandt on, Europe was always a Marshall Plan vassal state, and we were just told uh, lies in our school books, because basically, as we know the size of the Ramstein base, and I don't know how many... U.S. soldiers are uh, in the country you're speaking to me from right now. It has always uh, acted in lockstep for U.S. imperialism around the world. Well, as you mentioned Iraq, um, there was United Kingdom didn't join in Vietnam, interestingly. So, so leaders do make a difference. Harold Wilson refused to uh, to uh, commit U U.K. forces to Vietnam. Uh, Australia did. Sadly, what happened but, to Harold uh, Wilson? <laughs> well, he resigned in 1976. <laughs> no. uh, I met him not long afterwards, and he, in my view, he's still the greatest prime minister we had in the UK, to be honest. There are some in African countries that uh, may not uh, may not support that, no, indeed. of course. Um, you, the fact is, I presume that from where you are, the uh, state media BBC, I think the, the boss of the BBC has had to quit over a loan, arranging loans to Boris Johnson, but they're all painting Russia as losing. Um, this this war that Putin is either ill or about to be overthrown. 
do, do you think people believe these stories uh, as to uh, how far Russia has lost, miscalculated, and it's actually the end of Russia before uh, we soon witness the end of China? That seems to be a narrative coming from Reuters and Associated Press. Again, once again, one can draw the contrast between the UK and the United States. In the United States, there is a, you know, a Tucker Carlson, of course, who was putting forward a different perspective. In the UK, we now have GB News and we have some uh, alternative, but rather, I mean, not huge audiences yet. Um, but interestingly enough, the, the mass media is very strongly of one voice saying what you've just said. But yet, on the other hand, you have in the Daily Mail uh, a man I enormously respect, Peter Hitchens, who's been making uh, the rather uh, different point of view and perspective and more balanced view of to say this is uh, an awful war and we really must find a way uh, to find a diplomatic uh, way out of it. And Western triumphalism that Russia is losing, that Ukraine is winning, is, uh, you know, he's arguing and many others that is a false narrative. But I don't think it's making much of a an impression uh, in the in the public, to be quite honest, at the moment. Professor Richard Sakwa, I'll stop you there. More from the author of the book's Frontline Ukraine Crisis in the Borderlands and the Putin Paradox after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still with the University of Kent's Emeritus Professor of Russian and European Politics, Professor Richard Sakwa. What have you made about uh, Russia's uh, use of private military contractors, sort of US-style Blackwater military contractors mm. that we remember from the Iraq war with disastrous effects? Why, why does Russia need a Wagner group to fight in Artyomovsk or, or Bakhmut? What, what, what are you made about out of all of yeah. this? Well, one argument would be it's a sign of... Uh, how can I put it, fragmentation of the state. It's not just Wagner Group. Of course, we also have the Kadyrov, Kadyrovci forces. We also have Cossacks. And of course, the fourth major non-state uh, um, formation are the, uh, the the forces from the Donetsk people's Republic and Lugansk. On the other side, from a purely military point of view, the argument goes that uh, Russia is preserving it's, first of all, it's not throwing in the reservists into the front line. Some have gone, of course. But, uh, yeah, it's it, it's it's a very, you know, it, maybe it's a postmodern phenomenon of postmodern statecraft is that you can mobilize different forces. Worst thing is, of course, is that the Wagner Group as a private military company doesn't have legislative framework. There's still no law. So, you know, uh, de facto or de jure, it's uh, it's an illegal formation, like all the others. Maybe it's an IMF-arranged uh, neoliberal uh, breaking down of the yeah. state, you almost seem to suggest. Did it surprise you as a scholar to hear how quickly uh, culture was changed uh, in uh, the European Union? Obviously, television channels banned, but Russian sports stars, ballet stars, sopranos, composers... Uh, your book on Ukraine talks about the long history of the, of the horribly violent history of uh, Ukraine and Central Europe and so on, but this kind of blanket banning of uh, writers like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, did it, did it uh, shock you? It, it it shocks everyone. It's a shocking phenomenon. Uh, you could well, it say doesn't shock is... journalists uh, in the mainstream media, seemingly. They don't every day yeah. talk about the banning of uh, Tchaikovsky in Wales or yeah. something. 
Yes. Well, that was right at the beginning, and it was the 1812 overture, which does have a lot of bangs and cannon, so that may have been insensitive. But uh, And in Italy, of course, no. There's been a backlash against that uh, banning of culture, because once you start a cancel culture, there's no end to it. Once that genie is out of the bottle, it is shocking, I think, by any level. But is, am I surprised? No, because I've been arguing for quite a time now that uh, the sort of the... Atlantic West. There's a better West out there. There's a cultural West, a civilizational West. But the political West, as it took shape during the Cold War, after the Cold War became much more radical, and at the same time, I've used his word, sorry to use it, hermetic. In other words, closed. It, it's impervious to things coming from outside of it. And it then becomes a, a louder and louder echo chamber when only it only hear what it wants to hear. And when it hears things from Kiev and nothing, and the Poles saying bad things about Russia is then amplified, you know, some of the criticism may be fair, but then it's mag it's hugely magnified. And it's got to this point now when the second Cold War is at all on all levels worse than the first Cold War. I don't think we had any of this intensity. And in fact, towards the end of the Cold War, we had cultural exchanges, we had working on the International Space Station. But this Cold War, the intensity of it is damaging to, you know, to all the parties concerned, not just those at the end of sanctions, the Russian end, but those who impose it, because it changes the society and it changes the relationship between the state and society in the heart of the, the West itself. To which, of course, and I'm not sure they defend necessarily, Russians being treated as, uh, as Jews and communists were in, uh, in World War II, which seems to be the anecdotal stories that I hear of how Russians are treated in uh, the European Union. Did Russia break the UN Charter? Because at, at the um, UN General Assembly, most of humanity represented by envoys refused to vote to condemn Russia. Russia, of course, maintains it after Newland talking about biolabs and so on. There was adequate need to uh, protect Russia uh, from what was happening, let alone to protect uh, uh, the uh, civilians of Donetsk and Luhansk, which I think is a kind of uh, reason that was given, wasn't it, during the Yugoslav War by uh, European powers. Did it break it? And the ICC warrant on Putin, is that, are these uh, uh, emblematic of the uh, fact that the UN Charter, the International Criminal Court, all these sorts of institutions are now showing up for what they have been, which is uh, ways to actually uh, benefit uh, imperial power rather than what they were designed to do. I'd uh, separate the two things out absolutely. Uh, the UN and the UN Charter and all of the subsequent protocols is the foundations of the international system today. Uh, breached so often, as by the Anglo-American invasion of Iraq earlier, uh, as for the, the events of uh, February 2022, uh, you, I mean, Russia, of course, Moscow argues that uh, it, the right of self-defense is from Article 51 of the UN Charter does allow it. And then, of course, you would then say, was Russia in, in any imminent danger of being attacked? And of course, preemptive war is not uh, within the charter. But I am working on another book, I just to say, on this, which uh, I, uh, one of the fascinating elements is, is those last few weeks of decision-making. And in Moscow, who, and I won't say it now, 
but I've actually found some in very fascinating information about how the Russian political military elite broke down. And there were very, very significant voices in Moscow who were warning that if Russia goes first and it will get hit with sanctions and all the opprobrium for breaking the charter would then um, come out. And so some people urged, wait until Ukraine's forces go first, and then you can have a thing. But the United Nations and the international system which it represents is the appeal. I mean, Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, and Russia appeals to it, and China appeals to it. And I don't think it should be discarded lightly. Okay, there are certain circumstances where national interests have to go forwards as they are perceived. The ICC is something totally different. This really is uh, the um, criminal charge against uh, the, the, against Putin and against the um, Children's Com Commissioner um, Lyova Belyova. Is uh, is I, I, it was clearly a political act. And what we've now seen in the last few years is the usurpation by the political West of those institutions of international governance and international society. They've tried to do it for the UN and its system. They're fighting back, as you as you just said, that so many in the global South and China and India are defending it to the end. So the West is not allowed to privatize the UN system. It's trying to, it's, it's made the Security Council unworkable, but the ICC is a different case. And uh, OPCW, the chemical weapons uh, body, uh, they have been effectively, you know, become part of the political West. So they're no longer autonomous institutions. They all deny that, of course, uh, despite Indeed. the OPCW getting into a terrible scandal, obviously, of uh, helping to precipitate war on, on uh, Syria. Uh, so uh, why is it, do you think, that uh, pundits uh, and elites, and I suppose scholars in uh, NATO nations, really believe Ukraine will win? Why, why do they speak yeah. as if Ukraine, I mean, everyone loses in war, of course, but why do they, yeah. why do they uh, actually say that Ukraine will win when I assume most people in the world would uh, agree that mm. on paper Russia will win? Well, Russia has escalation dominance. It's a bigger country. It's got far greater resources. And even some of the US generals in their quieter moments, and they do have quieter moments, they say, uh, you know, at one moment they're saying Russia's, uh, you know, losing. Then the next minute they'll say, well, Russia's forces are now larger and stronger and better organized than they were a year ago. Uh, why they, why Western pundits are saying this? Because they're not listening to those uh, Tremendous commentators, as you know, Colonel Douglas McGregor, for example, in the United States is just one example. Um, Scott These Ritter, are the people former... labelled as Putin apologists, obviously, and there are well, just two: uh, Douglas McGregor and Scott Ritter. Yes, they, they are. I mean, but they're providing. I mean, these are you know expert um, opinions. You right. So any voice which they don't want to hear, of course, is condemned as being, you know, following Moscow talking points and so on, which is, again, it's, a, it's an intellectual closure. Um, one reason why I'm talking like this is that we've, I simply insist that, you know, dialogue has to continue with, with everyone, uh, and you can't just suddenly close down all discussion, close down debate, because it damages us. You know, I'm, you know, we're all patriots in our own, for our own countries. We want to see them survive. We want to see them thrive. But it takes different ways and people have different ideas. 
of how this should be done. I believe in dialogue, and I'll talk and talk and talk and discuss uh, just to make sure that, and I won't be intimidated by being, you know, I've been, I get my share of uh, abuse, of course, as well. You can effectively be silenced, though, of course. I mean, as I said, we spoke uh, on Saturday to the advisor to Zelensky's troops, who, former advisor and uh, an American veteran, and he spoke against any type of censorship because, of course, the United States has that First Amendment which guarantees that. Whereas, uh, and I think some Americans who support Zelensky to the hilt, they look bemusedly the fact that uh, Twitter uh, has to ban tweets in the European Union and Britain under law in, because of Britain and European law. Uh, that doesn't allow certain viewpoints being expressed on Twitter. Similarly, with ideas of uh, history about neo-Nazism in uh, Ukraine and so forth being banned under statute. Uh, why do you think Europe and Britain do this knowing full well that the United States, which is supplying the bulk of the weapons, would never think of doing that? That's a, that's a paradox, isn't it? That, as you say, the United States is the most forceful and in many ways one of the creators of the situation that led to conflict, yet at the same time it has such a vibrant public sphere uh, and debates, which we're lacking. Uh, it, it's very sad um, that, that uh, I mean, it, it does exist. I, I think we shouldn't completely denigrate it. I mean, I have um, endless discussions here as well, and there are people uh, who you know, will not be closed down, will not be cancelled, and will speak out. And, you know, also the tide, not just the tide of war, but the tide of public opinion will change. So at the moment, because the events have been so shocking, and, you know, uh, amongst the whole succession from Brexit onwards, then the um, the pandemic and economic crisis and war. So, you know, but society can it not is just a move on to China then? Because Britain has been sending its warships. I mean, we're not even talking about the uh, uh, one in five uh, in poverty in uh, Britain or the one in four children growing up in poverty right now. Uh, Britain has been able to afford to send warships in the South China Sea. Won't they just move from Russia being uh, Satan to uh, China being uh, evil and the need to... I don't know how they're going to attack China or precipitate warfare uh, in the South China Sea. It's it, again, it's a continuation. And, you know, as you say, as an academic, uh, the way I see it now is that the political West, this is a, you know, a, a military, political, ideological, propaganda, informational network established during the first Cold War. It never demobilized entirely after the end of the first Cold War, 1989-91. Uh, and now it's sort of back in full flood, but without the guardrails and without the, you know, some of the wise statesmen of the earlier generation, I'm thinking of Eisenhower, you know, say what you like about him. Uh, he was a great leader and so was uh, J.F. Kennedy. Today, we have uh, leaders who simply do not understand. And, and even Kissinger, who's coming up to his, Henry Kissinger, his 100th birthday, I think, and uh, who always warned for Washington sh and the West in general should not be in a simultaneously uh, in conflict with Moscow and Beijing and always try to make sure that Washington had a better relationship with uh, one than they had with each other, the 
famous kissing a triangle. And yet at the moment, this Biden administration, and of course it's with its supporters, uh, blundering into a simultaneous conflict with two major powers. And of course, uh, worse than this, it almost seems deliberate antagonism uh, over provocation over Taiwan, the, the high-level political visits, all of this talk, which goes against the, the Shanghai communique and all the fundamental relationships which were established uh, towards the end of the first Cold War. Professor Richard Sakwa, thank you. My pleasure. And that's it for the show. We'll be back on Saturday with a brand new episode. But until then, you can keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country. And head to our channel, Going Underground TV, on rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you Saturday. <laughs>